Hey guys, and welcome to the Bare Naked Health Podcast, where I interview the absolute best health and wellness practitioners from across the globe to show you what they do so you can do it too. This is because, like you, I did not always feel that health was easy. I had tried different diets, exercise plans, but often felt misled by an industry that really thrives on you not getting healthy and always spending money on the next new thing. Because of this, I'm getting bare naked on health and pulling back the curtain to show you that being truly healthy is simple. Wherever you are in your health journey, I want to show you that with minimal effort, you can get maximum results and do what you love. Play with your kids, go for a hike, and crush it in your business all while feeling great. To give a kickstart, I encourage you to go over to BarenakedHealthPodcast.com to access my calendar and schedule a 15-minute call so we can discuss what is your biggest struggle when it comes to maintaining your health. Remember that I'm a holistic lifestyle coach and that the show is really sponsored by you guys. Each of you that works with me that I am able to take on as a client helps me to be able to keep putting out these podcasts for free. So I just want to thank you, each of you, for your love and support. Hey guys, I'm your host, Nick Horaski, and welcome to the Bare Naked Health Podcast, episode number 87. In today's episode, I interview the barbell physio, Dr. Zach Long. Be sure to stick around for the end of the episode to hear Zach dropping some serious nuggets about blood flow restriction, his favorite craft beers, as well as our discussions on Juggernaut, Westside, and Buttwinks. Alrighty guys, another episode of the Bare Naked Health Podcast today, and on the line I have Zach Long, the barbell physio. Zach, first question I ask everybody who comes on the show is, tell us about your health journey in 10 sentences or less. 10 sentences or less, alright. Um, started out playing football growing up with my father being a football coach, and um, really fell in love with the strength and conditioning side of sports training more than anything else. So uh, lifting has always been my passion and has always been the main focus of what I do with everything physical fitness wise. That's way less than 10. Hey, that's, that's <laughs> perfect. That, that's simple. Now I know kind of where to take this here. Um, all right. So how has your, I guess, lifting progressed then? Because you started probably at a young age, it seems, but what have been some of the biggest changes that you've made throughout that? And especially like going to high school, then going through the whole strength and conditioning in college, doing that, but then also becoming a physical therapist as well. I'd say the majority of what has changed has been just being more varied in what I do, where typically in the high school programs, it's it's pretty uh, standard what you do based on wherever you are. You know, you, you the program you follow through high school strength and conditioning is pretty much the same thing nonstop, uh, linear progressions not getting into any more advanced progressions there, um, not varying the exercise prescriptions that you do, the exercise type. So, you know, you might only work back squat for four years in high school. There's plenty of high schoolers that, that never experiment with other variations of the squat, which is something that I think is really important because I think a lot of times we pigeonhole athletes and ourselves into thinking that we have to perform the squat and the deadlift or X exercise because it's the, you know, quote, time proven exercise. It's the best for this. And, and truly each athlete has different movement variations that are, that they're much better suited for. And I think if we better analyze things like that, we can probably get some better results, keep people a little healthier. Now, do you find, I guess, are you looking at somebody's anatomic structure? Like, all right, the length of their legs, length of their torso, like to, to vary some of those things for them then, you know, those definitely play an effect, but I have never, um, analyzed length of legs to determine what's best. Um, every now and then I'll have an idea from that, but really I believe it comes down to, to actually doing the movement and, and figuring it out, uh, figuring out what feels better. Sometimes I'll look at somebody's mobility like myself personally, I have ridiculous ankle mobility, but I don't have great hip mobility. So for me doing a front squat where I can keep my torso more upright and push my knees a little further forward becomes a better exercise 
when I want to work uh, maximum depth. I can't load a heavy barbell up and squat ass to the grass in a back squat, but I can go really heavy on front squats and go all the way down, no problem. It's just what my my mobility limitations are and what that allows me to do. Now I can squat to parallel with a heavy barbell without problems, but I, I just can't get much further than that with a back squat. Now, I'd like to kind of take this into uh, working with clients, working with patients, because you're talking about like, okay, this heavy loading, and I've listened to a couple of podcasts you've been on, like checked out some of your stuff, and you're not afraid to load people uh, from the beginning, it, it, almost, because I, I think that's a big deal, and I can really appreciate that. Because I get patients all the time where they come in, that like a body weight squat is scary for them to begin with, but they have to understand like, they're doing all of this with extra loads throughout the day. So why is that so important to really, I guess, start loading people from the get-go? Oh, yeah. It's amazing how, you said it right there, how, how intimidating some movement patterns could be. To tell somebody, I need you to do a bodyweight squat, and they're like, no, I can't do that. My knees hurt. How the heck do you get out of the chair every day? Exactly. Um, <laughs> you know, you do 30 squats a day just getting in and out. Um, and what I usually go to with people like that is like, if you're not strong enough to do a body weight squat or heck a squat with a holding a 35 pound kettlebell or something like that, think of every time you get out of the chair, how much of an effort that is for you strength wise, you know, you're working at, um, I told my grandma this a while back, like you walking up a flight of stairs is a max effort exercise because you're so weak. And, and yeah, I'm not afraid in the, the few elderly patients I get to, to get them doing squats and deadlifts. Um, I don't, that's not my primary population, but, um, I believe with everybody in the, the rehab world, everybody should be doing some sort of loading. If possible, that's heavy loading with large compound exercises. If we need to start with, uh, regressed exercises, isolated exercises to either strengthen individual segments or to provide a uh, loading stimulus to an individually injured muscle. We have to do that. But everybody needs load. Load is what is going to create true tissue changes. I don't believe that the manual therapy stuff that we do really creates any significantly true mechanical effects on the soft tissues. I don't believe that uh, a lot of the research on stretching right now questions a lot of our basic assumptions. And, of course, every week a new stretching study comes out saying something different. Stretching, I do 100% believe, has its place in rehab, but I don't believe that it compares to loading a muscle. Uh, I want to ask you about the manual therapy aspect of it because uh, I've seen great benefits like, okay, I'll do a little bit of manual with somebody, but then we're going to automatically go into movement patterns to support that range of motion. Now, is that what you're talking about? Or are you talking sometimes like where manual therapy is done and then it's like, okay, just go about your normal day now? Yeah, I'm with you there. Um, I like the way my friend Urson Religioso of the manualtherapist.com says it. Manual therapy is used to open a window of opportunity. We use manual therapy to decrease somebody's guarding to an area, decrease the amount of tone that muscles have, do something that allows the patient to move more and then perform the appropriate exercises. Uh, I always tell patients that it's the exercise that's going to get you better. It's the manual therapy that just might help you get to that exercise a little bit sooner. But uh, I'm not that good of a manual therapist, so I'm not going to lie to them and tell them like, yeah, I'm about to fix you with my hands because that to be honest, my hands aren't really good, but you make up for them. You, that's the one beauty of physical therapy though, too. You can be, have so many different aspects that you can work from, whether it be your exercise base, your manual base, just spotting movement patterns. I mean, you might be able to just see everything to a T you might not be able to correct that, but then you have somebody in your clinic who has a perfect complement to that, where it's like you can pinpoint all these things and then they can just look at something and then they, after that input is there, they can just make the changes from there too. So that's the beauty of it. There's so many different aspects you can go down. Yeah. I'm, I'm fortunate to work in a clinic with, uh, it's massage therapists, chiropractors, physical therapists. So we all have a very, um, varied background in what we do, which means we all complement each other very well. And even if you don't have those things available to you, to you 
Maybe you're not the best at spotting movement pattern inefficiencies. Maybe you're not the best manual therapist. I believe that so much of what we do as clinicians is due to our ability to connect with patients anyway. Some of the best clinicians I know have really crappy exercise backgrounds and aren't very good manual therapists, but they're able to get their patients to believe in them. There's a great quote in the in the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie, where he says something along the lines of 85% of your financial success is due to your ability to communicate with others and to lead others. Only 15% is due to your technical knowledge. And I think more people in the rehab world uh, would benefit from, from realizing that and spending just as much time on certifications as they do on improving their own ability to communicate with their patients, lead their patients, and uh, create buy-in. Yeah, that's that's a tough one to beat. Um, and, and it's one of those, if you can hook somebody on that first treatment session, the first time you're seeing them, you make an immediate change, they're sold. That's it. Yeah. Or you might not make the change, but you, you might not. You might refer them out to somebody who can. I mean, however that works, as long as you can help them get on that path immediately, hook, line, and sinker, they are going to be yours, and they're going to also follow through with everything then too, which is a big part of it. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious because you were talking about loading and I, one of the things that I saw you published was the, the 12 variations of loaded carries. Now loaded carries are something that I, I think is physical therapists are really not looked at at all as like a movement pattern. We just see gate as gate, maybe running as running and that's about it. Why is it that you want to really get people under load uh, while they're carrying, not just like the squats, the deadlifts, the presses? Well, loaded carries are pretty much the easiest way, I believe, to really load um, in a, quote, functional pattern um, for people who you want to strengthen but are scared of squats, deadlift, presses. It's a great way to introduce loading and even heavy loading in a, in a very low intimidating factor. I mean, every, every woman out there carries a purse in one arm that <laughs> I know a lot of women that have a 20 pound purse and, yeah, we, and they we, walk. we have a cl- scale in the clinic here. Like we'll go and take that and put it on the scale to show them what they're carrying around all day. Yeah. It just becomes uh, to me a, a really non intimidating way to load somebody. And no matter what we're working on, we can find a loaded variation that I believe will help most movement problems that we have. You know, if we're talking somebody with shoulder instability, they can be walking with a kettlebell overhead as a way to make them stabilize their shoulder as the rest of their body moves. If we're talking somebody with low back pain, different unilateral carries can make them have to use one side of their core a lot to really stabilize stuff. And the only thing you have to do coaching wise is say, stand upright, stand tall, don't lean, walk. Um, if, yeah. if they're if they're squatting, you know, they can hit failure and they can let their low back collapse and, you know, really threaten their their back safety um, with loaded carries. We don't see that danger. Like you get tired with a loaded carry, you set it down. It's it's uh, Dan simple. John, <laughs> a legendary strength coach, says it's 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 a self limiting exercise and nobody gets hurt on it because they just stop. It's that simple with loaded carries. I never, something you said that what you were talking about in there kind of sparked it. And yeah, if you just coach basically proper positioning, it's much easier to coach proper positioning with that than it would be some of the other, uh, I guess, more dynamic exercises that are going through greater ranges of motion where you have to stabilize through all those ranges. And I, it's making me think of like all this activation work. Like everybody's all about activation, activation, activation. Well, if you put a load on one side of the body, the other side, the body's going to have to load. Otherwise, you're just tipping over. Uh, right. And now you're getting that amazing movement pattern with it. Uh, no, that's that's a really good way to look at it. Uh, as well as now working on strength endurance, people are up walking all day long, uh, not making it that max effort, like you said, going up and down the stairs. Uh, no, it's just, hey, you're just going to do it because you're going up and down the stairs again. And that's, that's a really good way to look at it. So thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the other things I, I saw you, you've been going into, or I've heard you speak on too, was the blood flow restriction. Yes. Uh, can you give 
just maybe a brief overview uh, on that first in case people aren't familiar with it. Okay. Um, yeah, I am a uh, part of the seminar staff for Owens Recovery Science, which is a company that teaches blood flow restriction rehab to athletic trainers, physical therapists, chiropractors, anybody in the medical world. Blood flow restriction training refers to a training technique where we use a tourniquet to restrict blood flow to a limb. So for example, if we wanted to work maybe somebody's quads, we could place this tourniquet on their upper thigh and we're going to decrease the amount of blood flow that comes into the leg and completely occlude any blood flow from coming out of the leg. So if we're doing legs, I, I typically occlude 80% of the, the blood from coming in. So only 20% of blood flow comes in, zero comes out, and then we exercise. So as, as we all know from exercise physiology, there are two types of muscle fibers. We've got type one muscle fibers, slow twitch, aerobic muscle fibers that run on oxygen reserve fuel. And we have type two muscle fibers. Those are the bigger, faster, stronger muscle fibers. And when we restrict blood flow, the muscle obviously doesn't get as much oxygen. So we basically put the body in a situation where because it doesn't have oxygen, those type one muscle fibers aren't going to be uh, able to effectively produce force. So we can recruit type two muscle fibers, even at very, very light loads. So typically when we talk strength, uh, strength and hypertrophy training, most resources out there will say that we need to lift anywhere from 65 plus percent of an individual's one rep max. With blood flow restriction training, we've shown that even at loads as low as 20% of an, an individual's one rep max, so a third to a fourth of what we typically think of, we can get into anaerobic metabolism, meaning we're using those type two muscle fibers, which typically we only get to with those really heavy loads. And the byproduct of performing exercises with blood flow restriction training and light loads is that the body produces a lot of lactic acid because only those type two muscle fibers are being worked um, and they, they produce lactic acid. So we get a huge buildup of lactic acid with blood flow restriction training. And our bodies are really sensitive to lactic acid. And it's something that when lactic acid is present, the entire body really pays attention to that. And we get a lot of different hormonal and genetic changes that basically put the body in a situation where it, it wants to go into a, a muscle building and repair situation. So how I like to describe it to patients is when they do an exercise with blood flow restriction, they are going to get a really intense burn in that muscle from that big lactic acid production. And your body doesn't understand that you're at really low loads. Your body just feels that lactic acid and says, oh my gosh, we just ran from a dinosaur for 10 minutes. We just squatted 400 pounds for 10 sets of 10. All your body knows is that you just got your butt whooped and it needs to repair. So it turns on the hormones and upregulates, downregulates uh, some genes to basically put the body in a state of protein synthesis. So it's going to be rebuilding muscle, excuse me, building muscle, not rebuilding. Um, because there was, there's no muscle protein breakdown when you're doing light load blood flow restriction training. So you're going to be in a state of protein synthesis. Your body is going to release other hormones like growth hormone that help tendons and muscle collagen repair. So it just turns on a lot of positive things for, strength, hypertrophy, and recovery in training. So from a rehab perspective, a lot of times athletes, either because of a, a post-op uh, restrictions or because of an injury, we can't load a muscle or a joint very heavily, but we can use blood flow restriction training in that situation to provide a strength and hypertrophy stimula stimulus to provide uh, potential you know, tendon synthesis and college synthesis responses to help things heal faster, strengthen faster, um, regrow muscle mass faster during periods where we can't do heavy loading. About a million and one questions I want to ask on this. <laughs> uh, I guess one thing that I see after you're talking about that that could be really effective for this then are anybody, like you said, with just those uh, weight lifting restrictions, like if, if they're on light duty at work, anything like that, this seems like an awesome way to be able to still load lightly, but get all of that repair. Uh, and I'm really cool. Uh, I'm really intrigued, not so much by the muscle of it. Cause I still feel like 
easier to pump out the muscle, but the collagen synthesis, uh, that's like one of the biggies just to help repair the more, the, the ligaments, the tendons, the joints themselves. That's, that's a really interesting, uh, component I think of this. Yeah. That's one of the areas that I think is for people that have heard a little bit about blood flow restriction rehab. Um, that's one of the areas that I think people don't really know enough about is when you have somebody coming in with a tennis elbow, um, I'm, we're seeing people rapidly respond to tennis elbow. I want to say it's the Cincinnati Bengals right now that are working on a research study because they have seen the amount of time that their high ankle sprains are out be cut in about half. High ankle sprains are typically a slow injury to return from. And in the NFL, that's, that's a lot of money. So if we're seeing high ankle sprains, you know, return to play in three weeks instead of six weeks, that's, that's big time. And clinically, we've been seeing that as well, using it. Also, the other one, really one thing that I wanted to get into was, so you said strength and hypertrophy. Are there different ways, different, I guess, loadings with this, different um, occlusions that you're going to use to do for, for strength versus hypertrophy? Because going off of that, I'm curious for uh, people that are in like weight restriction classes, like they don't want to bump up a weight class, but they still want to get the healing benefits or the, the maybe the joint repair benefits from it. No, the protocols we use uh, as far as when we're going specifically for strength are pretty standard. I don't know. I don't have any situations where I'm dealing with significant enough of weight class restrictions that I'm worried about over hypertrophying somebody. Um, and I think for the majority of healthy athletes, that doesn't need to be something that we're probably thinking of there. But I guess it's a possibility. Well, I was just curious. Like, and that's just it. It depends. Okay, if I mean talking like Olympic weightlifting or powerlifting or any of these types of things, where if people are really just looking to stay in a specific weight class. Uh, and, and that's where I don't know, uh, the specifics. Of so how then much I guess, I guess get. what you're, what you could be looking at there is blood flow restriction training, puts your body in a state for increased protein synthesis. But if you don't have the nutrients into the system, it's not that it magically builds muscle out of thin air. So it's still going to go back to our basic calorie in versus calorie out restrictions. And although this has not been studied to my knowledge, I believe that if we, um, if we did blood flow restriction and you were, you know, in your caloric deficit state from, you know, trying to lean up for a competition that I don't think that blood flow restriction is not going to make it so that you magically put on a couple pounds. And I would imagine you would still get that growth hormone response that might would help you heal up and recover a little bit. Um, one thing that I should have mentioned earlier, we were talking about the, the legs and 80% occlusion when we're doing upper body, we're usually around 50%. And really the only way to measure that is with a Doppler ultrasound. So there's a lot of different devices out there right now for blood flow restriction training. Um, from little bands you can see on Amazon where they just ratchet it on you real fast to, you know, people using ACE wraps and, and compression bands to do it. Um, but really, if I th believe if we're in the rehab world, we are licensed medical professionals the FDA regulates tourniquets and they consider anything that partially or completely occludes blood flow as a tourniquet. So if we're using this in the rehab world, you need to be using an FDA approved device, which currently right now, the only FDA approved device is the Delphi personal tourniquet system is the only thing the FDA approves for doing blood flow restriction training. Um, I think that's an important note. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, there, there are plenty of people that, that, that are using other things in the clinic. Um, which that, that's your personal decision. Um, I believe that if something bad happens, then there's going to be a really happy lawyer out there somewhere that's <laughs> going to take you to town. Um, then there's also some of those other tourniquet systems, like the Amazon ones we talked about. They are really, really small. And if you are trying to occlude blood flow and trying to apply pressure to occlude blood flow, the wider the device you're using, the less pressure you need. So a lot of these small tourniquets, people are having to really crank down to create that occlusion effect because their tourniquet is so tiny. And that puts a lot of unnecessary stress on soft tissues. And there are instances of people significantly damaging nerves from doing improper blood flow restriction training. So um, make educated decisions when you buy a blood flow restriction 
training device based on your goals and what you're using it for. So I'm curious then too, uh, I guess some of like, I think basically Kelly Starrett made it most famous that I know of like the voodoo flossing, uh, that type of thing. Uh, I'm sure that still is different, but what do you see on that? Like, is that still something to really be aware of? Uh, just because of you're still occluding the blood flow to a specific area. You know, we don't really know why those compression bands and voodoo flossing works is I think what that's, what that's going to be. Does it occlude a little blood flow? Um, the, when I use it, that's, that's not my goal. I'm sure it does. And it's on very, very temporarily without the goal being occlusion when I use it on myself or patients. Um, but nobody really knows what it is. You know, they talk a lot about it. It frees up fascia and decreases shearing forces and things like that, which I think some of the research behind that is a little questionable. Um, and that's not my area of expertise at all. So I'm not going to say anything more than that, that I just think that it that might not be its actual effects. But I wouldn't, I personally don't worry about that being an occlusion effect where I'm risking any liability in the clinic. No, and thank you for clearing that up because I, I didn't see it as such either. Um, and it's one of those, I'm like you said, maybe I'm doing it for 30 seconds. Uh, not, not really, uh, causing that much, uh, blood flow to be restricted. And it's one of those two. Hey, if it works, it works. Like I'm not really concerned necessarily about why, like you said, maybe it's the fashion, maybe it's something else, but either way, it still does have very, uh, beneficial effects. Well, I'll tell you my belief. Um, on TV years ago, there used to be this commercial for thunder shirts for dogs and cats yes, yes. when there was lightning. <laughs> um, and I saw that commercial. I'm like, man, that kind of reminds me of voodoo bands. And then I did a rotation at a pediatric physical therapy clinic. And a lot of kids with hypertonicity will wear these, uh, I think they were called Spio vests. They're these really tight vests that provide compression across the torso. And I believe that the compression uh, turns down a lot of neural tone. So it's just going to get, uh, some muscles to relax a little bit, to not be quite as quote on, and then allow a muscle or joint to go through a little bit more motion. I don't think it has much mechanical effects, but either way that still, I think in turn does have mechanical effects just by being able to go through the motion then too. So that's, yeah, I I don't think it, by that, I mean, I don't, I don't believe it makes, you know, fascia move better or, okay. you know, I don't believe it breaks up adhesions in a muscle. But for the most part, um, other than when it comes to blood flow restriction training, because I teach and have to know the science, I'm not a tell me the science of something. I'm a does this work or not? Yes or no. Okay, I'm going to use it or I'm going to throw that away because it doesn't. And I think that's... I'm a clinician, the, not a researcher. Right, right. I, I think there's a... <laughs> a blend to that where you have to do a little bit of each and then basically you end up doing your own research. Like you're doing it. Is it working? Yes. Keep going with it. If it's not working and find, find the best, find the other people out there that are doing these things that have had the results, talk to them, see what they're doing. You're going to get that versus they might start a research or research study on it. Now it's not going to be another 10 years till it's actually published by then you're missing out on all these uh, opportunities that you could have for yourself, for your patients, just all the recovery oh, taking yeah. place. I love that, man. There's a, uh, there's too many evidence-based snobs out there right now. There's, there's a lot of evidence-based snobs and a lot of, uh, a lot of people that aren't paying attention to the evidence at all. Um, and, and they both got it wrong. I believe if you only pay attention to evidence and on, on the internet all the time, you see people argue, well, there's no evidence for that. There's no evidence against it either right now. <laughs> so it hasn't been what, disproven. What do, you, what do you want to do? Like go to a research study right now and we have to wait, you know, like you said, five, 10 years for the research study to come out. No, no. Use some common sense. Is there a potential anatomical neurological uh, explanations for why something might work? Try it on a few people. If it works, keep it. If it doesn't work, throw it away. My biggest beef with research, I guess, is all the other factors from all like think about everything you're putting into your body sleeping or not sleeping like just the amount of mental stress that you're under and all of these effects on the physical body can well they can be controlled for but the chances that all of those are being controlled for in every single patient of every single study and the the list goes on and on those are just certain ones but it, it's really impossible to have that perfect evidence-based study right and, and those research studies too it's like 
All right, let's look at does does Graston technique work on tennis elbow? Yes. Well, if, if you're treating tennis elbow, Graston alone is not the answer. Right. But the research study, because they want to prove or disprove, know, prove or disprove, and not have those confounding variables, that's all they use. And so then then I see a study that shows X technique doesn't work for this, and I'm like, does it really not work, or is it just that they only use that alone and that they didn't combine it right. with loading or different manual therapy techniques or or you know the the pain science stuff as well you, you can't uh god it's it's frustrating <laughs> research sucks <laughs> right. i'm glad i don't do it anymore so, talking about this kind of stuff then what are you just geeking out on right now and it doesn't have to be necessarily in research this could this could just be something you're doing in the gym for yourself. This could be for yourself, uh, for the cl- in your clinic, whatever it is. Just something you're just diving into and really just trying to find more about and just experiment with, even. Man, right now, really, um, for the last year, it has been nonstop blood flow restriction training for me. Just continually expanding what I use it on, um, and with me teaching, that has forced me to be so much in the research that I haven't been able to devote a lot of time to much else. Uh, beyond that, but it's it's been pretty much everything from using it initially with just a lot of post-operative patients in early phases where we couldn't load them to progressing to using it more with people with non-operative conditions like tennis elbow, uh, joint arthritis when we can't load them, all kinds of different conditions to now even getting into using it with a lot of my uh, elite athletes for strictly performance benefits. So it is, uh, that to me, that, that circle of what I use BFRN has just been continually growing. And that's what I get excited about is continually trying it with different conditions, different populations. So talking about even just some of the elite athletes, uh, and one like yourself, uh, do you have any competitions, anything that you're working on, uh, coming up or anything in the future? I am not elite athlete at all. Um, <laughs> no, you know, from from the strength and conditioning background, I was able to work in strength and conditioning for a while, and then after physical therapy school, was fortunate enough to to start writing for CrossFit Journal, CrossFit Headquarters, big publication where they put out different uh, training knowledge pieces for CrossFit followers. Um, and I, I started writing for them when I was still looking at CrossFit kind of from afar, and as I wrote for them more and, and studied their philosophies more and took their level one certification, I actually started to train more CrossFit style and, and basically went 100% in on CrossFit for a long time and really enjoyed it, but starting to get started to get kind of really burnt out in that metabolic conditioning stuff. Because like I said earlier, I, I like to lift. And, um, you know, if there's a workout that has a barbell or kettlebell in it, that's good. But there's a lot of workouts that don't have either. And it it drives (laughs) me nuts. And this year, over the past two years, something that I've become very big on is writing down where I want to go, writing my vision statement for my life, um, which is something I did about a year and a half ago and and changed a lot of things in my life. But I, I realized a few months ago that I haven't done this in other areas. I wrote this big overarching vision statement for my life, but I didn't go through and write down what are my fitness goals. I've been I've been training for the last 16 years of my life, but since high school I've never written down goals on what I want to do. So I've just been kind of mindlessly training for random things. And so I wrote down my goals a couple months ago, and and when I looked at my goals, it was four strength goals and nothing endurance. What are what are the goals at right now? All right. Uh, Clean 300 pounds, which I've been at 295 for a while. Bench 300, squat 400, deadlift 500. And I'm probably uh, bench, squat, and deadlift probably anywhere from 20 to 40 pounds away from those goals on each. Um, but when I when I wrote those out and looked at them, I'm like, well, crap, why am I doing all this conditioning work? That's not getting me closer to those goals, to those things that are most important to me. So I have kind of stopped doing the CrossFit strength plus conditioning stuff. And now I'm doing uh, much more strength based programming. Do you have uh, an overview of that that you can share? Yeah, I'm currently doing uh, the, the juggernaut method. So there are some people that are great, uh, great programmers. And um, while I certainly can program, I, 
I also realized a while back that I wasn't doing a good job of programming for myself. So I, I got on the juggernaut method as a way to give me specific numbers and percentages and things that I have to hit. Um, I'm about halfway through that four month cycle. And from there, again, looking at my goals and looking at where I've been, I kind of realized that, that I'm not approaching those numbers as fast as I should be. Um, so I am going to be doing a serious overhaul of my lifting when I finish this juggernaut method program and go to more of a West side style template where I'm going to be really using a lot of, of the main lift variations because I kind of feel like you reach points with any exercise where you're just not going to progress so much for a while and you need to give your body different stimuluses. So constantly doing different deadlift and squat variations, different bench press variations, I think will be a, a way to get me over the hump on some of these goals and get me progressing faster towards those goals. The West side method does a great job of using a lot of different variations. Um, obviously they're, they're way more geared towards geared power lifters. Those wearing uh, special suits to perform the lifts. Um, but they do a great job of, having you analyze what your specific weaknesses are. So if your squat's bad, like you need to figure out where, where in your squat musculature you're weak and bring that up. And they do a lot of isolation work, which is contrary to what a lot of people in the sports world are doing. But if you've got a weak link in the chain, um, that's going to be your, your greatest limiter. And if you don't bring those weak links up, you can't just keep hammering away at the squat and expect it, expect X muscle to magically get back on track. Uh, I'm a big believer in the West side methods, uh, myself. That's something really in the last two months, I've started getting back to training for strong man and it's helped my lifts unbelievably, uh, both just, well, you said power lifts of all sorts, but just my, uh, implement training, if you will, too. Uh, but I must say, like you said, so like more ge like geared towards the gear uh, type lifter. I actually don't think so because I don't use anything outside of maybe wrist wraps, uh, like no belts, no nothing for my knees, like elbows, nothing like that. And I'll say I'm feeling awesome doing it. Uh, I actually feel like I can recover better with this method than other things that I've tried programming for myself. Uh, I think the two biggest takeaways I've gotten from it, outside of, like you said, the, the varying of lifts, are isometrics and jumping, like plyometric exercises have just been awesome to uh, get get back into my programming. Yeah, it's, it's really cool how they, uh, for such a specialized sport, they have three lifts. And they still care about maintaining some athleticism with jumping, some general physical preparedness with sled drags and things like that. And they stay, they stay very, very varied for just needing to focus on three lifts. Something that we don't see in a lot of like, like Olympic weightlifting. We don't see people get typically as varied in their Olympic lifting programming as we see uh, the West Side Barbell. There's a, there's a huge debate happening right now with Louis Simmons, Louis Simmons coming out with his How I Would Train Olympic Weightlifters yes. book. Um, and, and while I see everybody's points, and I, I wouldn't agree with all of his points I haven't read his book, so I can't right. specifically comment, but just from what I understand, I, I wouldn't agree with all of his points, but dang, he's produced the strongest guys in the world for the last, what, 30 years? Yeah. There, there's nobody you can argue <laughs> has done a better job of producing strong athletes. And I think anybody in the sports world has to pay attention to what West Side Barbell has done and, and think about how they can implement some of that stuff into their own training, whether that's runners, football players, power lifters, Olympic lifters, and, and take some, some key points away from him. He's an awesome guy to listen to. Um, you know, there's, there's so many gurus out there right now that, that swear that their system is the best system and nobody else's is better. And they'll fix every single thing out there with their system. And you listen to Louie and, and if you don't know his background, you really think that you think that that's him, right? He's so, <laughs> he's so, uh, he knows this stuff so much and he's so confident in his methods that, that if you didn't have any idea who he was and you listened to him, you're like, this is just another cocky guy who thinks he knows everything. And then you hear his track record and you're like, oh yeah, he's, he's legit. Okay. Right. It, the <laughs> Can't proof argue. is in the pudding. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, I, it's unfortunate that people uh, become close-minded to those things. 
Like he said, he he talks about, and I've been listening to him a lot more. Is he wants USA weightlifting to be the top? Like, of course, like he still is all about that. It's not that he's just saying like all powerlifting is the only way to go. No, he's encouraging weightlifters, uh, athletes of all sorts. But he's figured out ways, methods to bring up those strength levels to have the carryover. Like he said, I'm not going to teach you to weightlift. I'm not. He's not going to teach you the mechanics. He'll emphasize that he's not going to teach you to throw a ball, whatever that is. But he's going to get you into the optimal conditioning, the optimal strength to really excel at that uh, on the field or, or whatever platform you compete in. Yeah. Well, the, the majority of elite lifters, like how much technique work do they really need? Most of the time after a few years of being a really good lifter, your technique is where your technique for the most part needs to be. So then what are we talking about? What do you need to do to be a better lifter? Well, that probably needs to be to improve the strength component more and more. And I think based on what he said in his study of Russian weightlifters, that tends to be their philosophy. And they teach the the technique early. And from then on out, it's, well, we got to get you stinking strong. Um, I really wish, because he's been saying it for a long time, that he wants an Olympic lifter out there. I wish that there was somebody out there Just that, was, that was like, look, I'm not an Olympic level weightlifter right now. And if I keep doing what I'm doing, I'm not going to be that. I'm going to be really good, but I'm not going to be an Olympian. And I wish somebody that, that just knew that they're, you know, they're, they're 10% away would just say, you know what, what do I have to lose? I'm going to go train at Westside Barbell for, for two years and just see what happens. Somebody's going to do it soon, I think. Yeah. Somebody's got to. It, it's, it, like Look, you said, if, it's if only a matter of time. If you're wrong and you go out there for a little while, you're going to learn a ton about right. about getting stronger. You're not going to get any. I don't, I don't think anybody's going to be a, a legitimately worse lifter for going to Westside Barbell. No, absolutely not. There's, so I, I really hope happen. somebody does it soon so that so that we can, you know, get a N of one case study on what that does. Yeah, and and then of course there's gonna be so much other speculation, but you're still gonna see, hey, did they get results? Yes. So there's something that he's doing that's working. So that's that's all it'll come down to. So Zach, I'm curious. Okay, you said you can kind of do an overhaul to, uh, I guess, I guess some of your programming, uh, if you will. What is maybe the other biggest area that you're lacking to help with your strength, bring those numbers up? <laughs> uh, for me, that would definitely be diet. So what's diet the plan is, to change that for yourself? Um, you know, I've, I've been talking for a long time about doing, uh, I don't want to go strict paleo. I think, uh, my body needs more carbohydrates than, than what the, I think the typical paleo diet provides. Um, but I've been thinking for a while on moving towards something like that. I have worked with, uh, one nutrition coach a little bit, um, dealt with a lot of adrenal fatigue issues for, for a good while. And, uh, through some changes there where we, changed, uh, got a little bit more fat intake, a little bit more carbohydrates, really worked on sleep more than anything. I finally feel like I am out of the, uh, adrenal fatigue standpoint, which is something that I was battling for a really long time. Um, when you get in that hole and you can't sleep, it's really hard to break that. And, uh, so I, I took a few steps, um, specifically for sleep. And I think sleep for me was, was the, the biggest thing. Um, I realized I was working way too much. I, I love what I do so much that I can treat patients 10 hours a day and I can go home and write articles and post stuff on social media and stay up till, uh, till late at night doing that and then try to go to sleep. And, and then I couldn't turn my mind off. So I ended up basically making myself some curfews on if I'm planning on going to sleep at 10 o'clock that I'm done with all work at nine. Um, usually about two hours before I go to bed. I wear um, some blue light filter glasses. I already have that on my computer and my cell phone, but if I'm watching TV or something else, I'll put these glasses on that just decrease the amount of blue light your eye perceives, which uh, tends to overstimulate our minds. Um, it overstimulates your mind while making you fatigued is what my nutrition coach basically said. So it basically kind of turns you into a zombie. Um, and, and between the cutting work off and wearing those blue light glasses, that helped me a lot be able to get in bed and when I when I laid down to be able to turn my brain off. 
And that and some minor nutrition changes helped me get over a lot of that adrenal fatigue stuff. I think from there I got to get rid of some of the junk food and uh, definitely get rid of some beer. <laughs> yeah, but the thing about the blue light blocking glasses, the ladies love them. They just look so good too. Oh right? gosh, thankfully, <laughs> thankfully I just got married, so and I still have to wear my I still have to wear my retainer. Oh really? So uh, so yeah, when I uh, when I put the glasses on and the retainer, oh man, the wife's loving me. <laughs> Great combination. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right, you're talking about drinking a little beer, some snack foods too. What's your biggest vice? It doesn't have to be uh, food. I mean, just in general. Do you have do you have something that really stands out for you? Oh man, I love craft beer. Craft beer. Love, love craft beer. Yeah. What's a favorite? Um, or something that you're into right now? Right now, I'm really into uh, Old Mac Brewery Mectoberfest. It's every year they have their their version of Oktoberfest. It's it's probably my second favorite beer. But anytime this time of year, that's what I'm drinking. Sierra Nevada also makes a great Oktoberfest. Um, but number one usual beer for me is, is Sam Adams. It's it's a classic. I think it's hard to beat a Sam Adams. All right, fair enough. I, I can't say that I'm a beer fan, uh, but I know a lot of people like they love those craft beers. Everybody has their little nuances that they like about each of them and hey it's a beautiful thing yeah charlotte's uh charlotte north carolina where i'm at it's a big market for craft beer we've got a lot of little tiny breweries around here so it's a great area if you're into that <laughs> everybody's going to be floating down there now <laughs> uh okay so some of the things like you said you'll do uh like writing at night uh and, and whatnot what are some of maybe your favorite pieces that you've done maybe not your most popular but just you were so proud of what you put into it, whether it be an article or uh, like any like thing you've written just for your website, anything like that. Uh, I'd say my two favorite articles are fixing hip pinching during squats, which I co-wrote of, with uh, Michael Mash of Barbell Rehab. We just talked about people that get a little anterior impingement while they squat, how we typically address that and gave athletes a game plan for that um number two favorite article that i've written for my site specifically would be um an article that's coming out november 7th and that is uh fixing the butt wink in the squat i think there's a lot of misconceptions around that that butt wink meaning the lumbar flexion at the bottom of the squat and uh athletes and coaches tend to only blame mobility problems and i give a little uh, framework for how I look at that as far as how do we determine if that's a mobility problem, if that's a motor control problem, and some some uh, initial fixes for athletes dealing with that to start to get their movement patterns a little better. Um, uh, if we can get a little insight, uh, or maybe this is just what you cover in it, uh, are there, is there ever a time where the butt wink is appropriate? Well, if you're if you're doing Olympic weightlifting and you're squatting all the way down, there's very few individuals that have the anatomy necessary to squat all the way down. I think some recent research basically shows that when everybody squats, their lumbar spine goes through some flexion. So everybody has some, some form of butt wink when they squat. Um, just a matter of, is it quote too much or not? How do you measure that? There's no way to really measure it. <laughs> um, it's just look at people and, and kind of guess if it is too much or not. Um, and then, there, you know, there's a lot of debate right now. Does it even matter? I believe that 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 it probably does. Um, I think loading the back and then going through a flexion moment is, is probably more stress than we want to put on the low back. Um, but I would say that research-wise the research snobs would tell me there's not enough research for that. So um, then my argument would be, are we going to be the, the potential for injury away? Are we going to be a better lifter and more effectively transmit force? If we keep our spine stable, I believe yes. So if we can keep that uh, low back movement minimized in the bottom of a squat, I think we'll be, we'll have more efficient lifts. I'm half on board with you. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, so I, and I want because this is an awesome thing to to kind of geek out on too. Like I said, I compete in strongman. Uh, even going back to Louis Simmons, like they're talking about the rounded back, the arch back, good mornings, like all the different things they do. And I feel personally like what's helped me the most because I do a lot like stone work and stuff where I'm lifting, loading stones. I want to have my strong my my spine strong through an entire range of motion. So I'm yeah. looking at the flexion. I'm looking at the extension. Uh, and not just having to lock it there because 
if for some ever if for some reason you ever fall into a slight extension or a slight flexion and you're not strong enough to handle it now do but i'm still with you like do you start with that no you have to progress into yeah. that for sure so yeah that that leads into another article that i'm i'm working on right now best uh core moves for for weightlifters and despite me thinking that that we're going to be in a better position if we're neutral or not moving when you do olympic weightlifting or strongman you get out of position there's such technical lifts you're doing heavy weights they're the best lifters in the world get out of position maybe they catch a clean with their low back a little too rounded maybe they do a jerk and they overextend their low back so yes you need to have trained some in those areas to be strong so it, i think if i have my choice from the maybe potential safety of it, then I might would do some more unloaded movements to strengthen in those areas. Um, like a GHD back extension, which is a great way to work on segmental extension control and strength of the, the low back muscles. So yes, I think you need to, to train in those areas some because athletic performance, athletic movements don't always happen in neutral. If you look at swimmers backs and, you know, baseball players and everybody moves out of neutral. And if we only train the quote stability where we're in a neutral spine doing planks and pile off presses and stuff, we do, uh, we don't target everything. The The research on isometric shows that, what is it like a 15 degree range? Approximately. Something, yeah. something like that. So if you only train neutral, then you don't have a huge window of, of movement outside of neutral to, uh, to have a lot of strength in. Yeah, and I think we're pretty much in agreement on this. It's like, all right, you have to learn the proper mechanics first. Once you do that, once you're at getting at a higher level, now it's yeah, going through that full range motion, getting strong. Uh, going off of that, even I'm a little curious. Talk about people like okay, they they blow their back out or whatever, like a, a disc herniation of any sort. Because I'm under the theory that all right, this is just you've been cumulatively traumatizing this, and this is whatever it was is usually just the straw that broke the camel's back. It's not that. There was just ever one thing you did, and that's the only thing that ever contributed to this. But I'm interested on your thoughts on that. The low back pain is an interesting area right now. Um, when we look at modern pain science and we look at the the rates of disc herniations and disc degeneration and arthritis in healthy populations, those numbers are still through the roof. So we have to have a discussion on are those things normal processes of aging, just like wrinkles on your face are, or are they um, are, are all, all disc herniations evil? Um, <laughs> and um, it's a thing that I'm back and forth with every day. And I think like most things in the rehab world, the middle of the roads where we need to be. And we've got a lot of people that are are freaking out on other clinicians for diagnosing patients with a disc herniation and, and telling them that that's wrong and that disc herniations don't matter. The research shows disc herniations don't matter. Um, and on the same point, we got a lot of people that are just strictly biomechanical on every, every back injury is from X tissue being damaged. And there's, there's a big difference between Stu McGill and his biomechanics and, and some of the pain science people. And I think when, when we all get more towards combining those two based on the patient in front of us, we'll have better results. So to me, all of that comes down to, to what I'm seeing. I saw a, a elite lifter last week. She dealt with back pain for a really long time, uh, was treated by a colleague of mine and got much better, was back to 100% lifting, doing everything she wanted to do. She did. A, she was doing a, a back squat in the gym, um, and she was purposely doing it with a little bit more forward torso lean to try to bring up posterior chain a little bit. And uh, she just dropped the bar mid-lift and had horrible back pain for four days. And I saw her and um, spoke to her about two days later after I treated her. And, and honestly, I didn't do much. We did like we did like bird dogs and side planks. Seriously, nothing that that for an athlete of her caliber was was anything crazy but two days later she felt great did we biomechanically change anything no i told her i told her when she came in i said i, I really don't think based on looking at this lift that that you jacked anything anatomically up i think you tweaked something and i think because you dealt with this back injury for such a long time your nervous system just went absolutely haywire on you and and you immediately thought oh my gosh i'm back to where i was of not doing the sport that I love for six months 
because I just blew my back out again. Um, but then certainly on other occasions, I've seen somebody that, that I'm like, yeah, that is 100% a <laughs> disc herniation causing their pain. You know, do I necessarily say like, oh, you blew out a disc? No, because that's going to scare them. But yeah, I still do pay attention to the biomechanics, but I also pay attention to the pain science. Um, it's, it's a tough battle to figure that out sometimes. Zach, I think the beautiful thing of it is right now, you're open to it all and you're trying to bring it all together as best you see fit. And being, having that open mind to look at certain things from different aspects is going to help you best help your patients. And that's really still is what it's coming down to uh, in the long run. Yeah, there's too many people that think they have it all and they know it all right now. (laughs) I don't know it all. I'm glad I don't know it all. I hope that everything I'm doing right now, five years from now, I'm doing something a lot better and I'm not doing the same stuff I'm doing right now. Progress, that's what it's all about. It's it's more fun for me to just learn new things and being able to come back. Okay, I learned something outside of the clinic, like went somewhere, talked to somebody, and then you bring it back and you can implement it. It's like, wow, that's just such a cool feeling. Uh, not, Not the fact that like, oh, I didn't know that before. No, it's like now I know this and I get to use this and I get to share this with others to help them out. Mm. Uh, I think it's just so much fun for me. Yeah, it's a a fun time with the amount of information coming out there on all different things where everybody can learn something new to implement every single day and everybody can can much more rapidly than, than ever before become a better clinician, better coach, better practitioner of fitness themselves through free resources. And that's the great part about it too. Uh, mm-hmm. And speaking of free resources, um, all right. I, one of the last questions I ask everybody is, who would you want to hear on this podcast? And what would you want to hear them either talk about or what question would you specifically ask them? Anybody that you're just kind of geeking out on like, or just really into, even if it's like you talked about some of the, the blood occlusion training, anybody that you would want to hear speak on that even more in depth? Well, I know everybody doing the blood flow restriction stuff, so I probably wouldn't uh, need to speak to them on that. I would really love to hear somebody that that elite pain science guys, somebody that that's what they they that's their bread and butter, and I want to hear them talk low back pain biomechanically. You know, uh, Adrian Lowe, O'Sullivan, somebody like that, or or somebody like. Uh, Urson Religioso, who's big in pain science stuff. How do they how do they come to the middle on those two things? Because you can't say that everything is just nervous system threat. And Adrian Lowe's even said it a lot. I think at a, at a recent conference, he said that you know we can't forget about the tissues. The tissues still matter. And it, it's to me, it's it's it, it was interesting to see him say that. And I haven't gone to any of his courses, or anything like that. So he may already cover this. But I just see so many people in the pain science world that, that I think have forgotten that tissues matter. I was joking with a friend of mine a while back. I said, next time I cut my hand and it bleeds, I'm going to take a picture and I'm going to post it on Twitter and tag some people in it and say, I tried to tell my brain that it was just a perceived threat and that my hand didn't actually hurt just to see what they respond with. I, yeah, that, that, I think that needs to be done flat out. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean? Because 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 they just say that so many of the injuries we deal with are just perceived threat, and we can just get rid of the perceived threat by telling somebody that or doing something. And no, there's still tissues that hurt. I've cut myself pretty badly before, and it hurt like hell. <laughs> and there was nothing I was going <laughs> to say to myself that was going to get rid of that, that. <laughs> perceived threat. <laughs> well, Zach, this has been a fantastic talk. And where can the listeners go? to find out more about you, these articles we talked about that you're writing, just anything that you have available to share with everybody, please. Yeah. The, the main spot is the barbell physio.com and also on uh, Facebook and Instagram username, the barbell physio and on Twitter is Z long DPT. Zach has been a, a, an awesome uh, chat here. Loved geeking out on this stuff with you. Uh, thank you again so much for your time. I appreciate it. Make sure everybody go check out Barbell Physio, checking out everything he's putting up on all the social media because it's great info. Whether you are a clinician, whether you are just looking to get strong, stay healthy, just be able to move better throughout your daily life, this has been awesome. Thank you so much, Zach. Thank you, Nick. Thanks again for listening. 
And don't forget to head over to BarenakedHealthPodcast.com to check out the show notes for today's episode. While you're there, go to my calendar and schedule a 15-minute call so we can discuss what is your biggest struggle when it comes to maintaining your health. Remember that I'm a holistic lifestyle coach and the show is sponsored by you guys. Each of you that I work with helps me to be able to put out podcasts like this for free. So thanks again for your love and support. Finally, if the show has helped you out in any way, please head over to iTunes to give the Bare Naked Health podcast a positive comment and five-star rating. This really goes a long way in getting the word out with how simple health can be and helping to share the podcast with others. So thank you. Mm-hmm.